Introducing ADT Self Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cams. It can be easily installed at your convenience and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. I envy people who make documentaries. Journalism, as it said, is the first rough draft of history. Errors are highlighted and corrected. New information changes the story you thought you knew. And even when you get it right, it's never, in a sense, complete. Documentary filmmakers have the luxury of time and perspective. Thank you for joining us. The Connecticut Forum, an evening with Ken Burns, will begin in a few So I want to share with you a conversation I had with Ken Burns the premier documentarian for PBS. <laughs> We're going to swap notes. As I was saying uh, backstage that I don't have the patience for documentaries that I grew up. <laughs> Wait. To make documentaries. <laughs> Burns films come together over years, and there is a gutsy grandness in their scope. The Civil War, jazz, the Dust Bowl. Even as he describes his approach as being pretty simple. Storytelling is the editing of human experience. Honey, how was your day? I back slowly down the driveway, avoiding the garbage can at the curb, is how no one ever said it, unless you got, unless you got T-boned. Yeah. In which case, that's exactly the way you say it. No, you cut to, my boss is a son of a bitch. Oh, you can't believe, and you suddenly set up the introduction, and then you start to tell the story. So. You know, we superimpose over the seemingly random chaos of human events a frame. So how do you present a version of history in a contentious moment? Whose version wins out? I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. One of the things you mentioned backstage about how you do your work is something called the blind assembly. Yeah. I'm really interested in this. Tell me what, what that is. Sure. And kind of how you work through it. So a blind assembly is when we start, we are assembling all these talking heads. We're getting all this information, first-person voices. The, the, the assistant editor is reading George Washington. This person's reading that. We're, we're collecting this stuff. But we don't want to add pictures to it because we sometimes have four-hour episodes. So we listen to it essentially as a radio play. Wherever we've decided one of our talking heads might work there, we've piled them all in, and we see that, but everything else is black. So it's a radio play, a blind assembly. And we listen to the story. We hear it as a story. And I'm, I, I, sometimes in one pass, I can go from four hours to one hour and 50 minutes, right? But the blind assembly is, a, is an incredibly important tool to not waste editors' time filling but pictures. But also, I think the reason why it's so fascinating is that everybody talks so much about your visual style. I, They're right. obsessed with the pictures it's, and the use of the pictures. And you're telling me something really fascinating, which is that, you know, to build the story by listening, now so much of your work makes sense to me because you really can close your eyes and still get a tremendous amount out of it. Oh, it's so funny because I hear people say, I've, I've watched or listened to your film several times. Like they watch it a few times and then they're a painter or a sculptor or they're a cook and they have it on and they're listening to it. 
the the presumption is is that somehow the image is the enemy of the word and vice versa. In the beginning is the word. And our f- films are heavily scripted for the most part, meaning written. And other than that, they're very dense. If the, the ones that don't have narrators, like Central Park Five or other films that we've done that don't have narrators, are, are themselves incredibly dense literary things yeah. that you can hear. One of the things I say to my staff is everything on the plate has to be edible. Right. So that's right. do not put in a piece of sound that's decorative. That's only decorative. It always has to advance the story. That's right. And sometimes I'll listen to a draft of a, a radio piece um, and I will refuse to look at the script. And I want to hear the sound with no, what we call tracking, no language in between. And the test is, will the story be told with just the clips of tape, no narration? And then I come in and work on the narration. But I think it's a similar idea in that, is it strong enough to sustain without competing with these other things. That's exactly right. And, you know, all the all the words you use, too many notes, uh, not enough. I mean, sometimes you make something better by taking things away. The most important thing... That's all I do is chop. Is, <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> I, I am known for the long knives. But the, um, the most important thing has nothing to do with length. It has to do with complexity. I have in the editing room a lowercase cursive sign that says it's complicated because there's not a filmmaker in the world who when a scene is working doesn't want to touch it but we've done for almost 50 years nothing but touch to open up a scene and make it more complicated perhaps destabilize it make it not as good as it was but is honoring the fact that the stories that we tell sometimes particularly in a media society in which we're so overwhelmed we tend to select for the simplest, the superficial, the conventional, and that it's really important to understand all of the undertow, the dimensions, the contradictions. And if you can devise structures that permit that to obtain, then you're closer to what human experience is like. You mentioned complexity, and um, I think this is a good moment to talk about one of your works specifically, uh, which is Mark Twain. This came out in 2001, and you've talked about the idea of race and place being dominant themes that kind of run through your work, and you were saying that you didn't think you could make this today. I don't think I'd be allowed to make it quite the way I did. Uh, It's a complicated novel, a complicated story in life uh, because of what Twain is wrestling with, and particularly this story particularly the way in which he grapples alone among writers in the 19th century um, about race and, and the other twin thing of our, our, our geographical space. Um, the N-word shows up throughout uh, in the novel and spoken on in the texts that we found in the place, and we just are in a different place. The PBS shows it periodically, uh, I think, not in a national setting, but various How do stations. you think of it now? Like, what are the things you would do differently? Nothing, nothing. I, I wouldn't do it differently. I just know that just different ages of us are constrained by different things, you know? It's, it's, what do you think the constraints are today? Just, I think, uh, the sensitivity about language and description, and I think our, our, the fact that we're all 
involved, you know, the novelist Richard Powers said that the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And I think that we are, we've devolved into argument, and so we are positive that everything has a kind of binary sort of setup to it when it doesn't, has more complexity to it. But PS puts just language warnings, you know, that there are triggers and, and things like that on it. Um, it's, Do it's you think there's a way to approach these things differently today? No, I think we told a good story. Um, and I think it's important, though, to honor the fact that we're in a different space and that people sometimes have reactions to this. I'm, I'm terrified by books like Huckleberry Finn being banned uh, because it is such an important and, and, and seminal knowledge, uh, a novel in, in American history. We'll uh, get to the potential for book bans in a moment, but you know, one of the reasons why I want to ask you about this is because there have been so many interesting ways that storytelling has been challenged and that storytellers are being yes. challenged by this moment. Um, some of it is perspective, acknowledging one's perspective. Some of it is undermining ideas of objectivity. Um, and you know, it's funny, I fight with myself about this idea of sensitivity. Because I think there is a way to tell this story today that is far more sensitive to some of the themes of it that we wouldn't think of then because we were sort of focused on Twain's, Twain specifically in his life and his I style. I think it would be worth watching the, the film and seeing. This is not to critique the film. No, no, I'm just I know. saying, because you mentioned the book itself. Yeah. And I think of all the kids who might have sat in a classroom and sat through a pretty brutalist <laughs> kind of lesson plan around yes. it yeah. and how humiliating that, that can could be. Have been, yeah. And that there is this opportunity now to, to think actually in the way that your expert does. Because yes. what your expert does in the story is Jocelyn not Chadwick. what people were encountering so in classrooms. That's what I meant about what we're doing and what we've done. I mean, a lot of the things that you're speaking about, I went back and was looking at the Civil War series, you know, thinking, I'm not going to do it any differently, but to look at it in the lens of it. And it's doing all the things that we would demand of it now. And it's doing it in the same way. It's, in, it's inclusive, and it has unbelievable... Uh, scholarship that had not yet been put out and it doesn't center it deals with perspective and the uh, fraudulence of objectivity which i've as a filmmaker my first day of film school film class you know nothing there's no no there's no objective view or she's not telling um all of us have a subjective point of view and you have to actually understand it and deal with it and and speak to it one of the questions we have here, it's from uh, Andrew Cole. Thank you, Andrew. It says, what's one aspect of one documentary that you regret either cutting or emphasizing? Hmm. You know, we spend so long, I can't really say. Uh, there was a moment in our Jefferson film, it was before the definitive evidence, DNA evidence, that the Hemings family were definitely related to Thomas Jefferson. Um, so there was a kind of late, this was done in the late uh, 20th century, early 21st century kind of tabloid, did he or didn't he, with regard to Sally Hemming, who was an enslaved person that he knew that was in his household. And we interviewed Joe Ellis, a great constitutional scholar, said, everything I know about Jefferson, he couldn't possibly have done it. And we interviewed Madison Hemings, 
who is a descendant of Sally Hemings, who said, look at me, I've got red hair and freckle face, you know? <laughs> and it was interesting that John Hope Franklin, who's a late Did you think about changing, or did you think, oh, maybe we should have spent more time with the scholars who did believe it? No, 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 no. We, we did honor all those perspectives, so we had a kind of dialectic going. And then John Hope Franklin says, it really doesn't matter whether he, owned her, whether, he, whether he slept with her or not. He owned her. He could do anything to her. He could kill her, and there was not a law in the, state of Virgi- in the, in the colony of Virginia that would protect her, her. And that was the important thing, that we were getting distracted a little bit by a kind of sexual dynamic in favor of the fact that, well, Thomas Jefferson wouldn't have killed his slave. His nephews murdered one of his slaves because they'd broken a teacup that had belonged to their mother, and nothing happened to them. And this is one of the points we made, so. It's interesting, you were able to make that point, and I feel like we're in this moment where people who disrupt the historical, the established historical narrative, particularly around founding fathers, have a really tough time. Yeah. We saw this, obviously, with the great discussion around Confederate statues, but it has blossomed further into um, the reaction to the 1619 Project um, and reaction to what people call critical race theory. But some of what I hear is people saying, that's not how we tell our story. Don't do that. Don't poke holes in that. Yeah, I, I've had that a lot almost all my professional life, but it's kind of too bad because it's much more interesting the more complicated it is. Well, why do you think the conversation is so vicious right now? Because I think people th- feel threatened by that. And so, I mean, it's always been that way. I mean, I, I work in America. The stuff that was happening in our colonies right here 250 years ago exactly feels exactly like today in lots of different ways. I mean, human nature does it. The Bible has it right. What has been will be again. This is Ecclesiastes. This is the Old Testament. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. The same kind of um, quantities of generosity and greed and virtue and venality and puritanism and purience. And it's just all there. It's all, everything is there. So you study the past. It's the greatest guide to the present in all of its complexities. And they're all deeply flawed. Yeah. They are all deeply flawed people. Um, and all of the, the, the stuff, it's, that's, that's to me what's so interesting because we know this in our own personal relationships. We extend to the people we care about most the kind of latitude to be their complex selves. Grace. But then when we go out into the world, everything is a binary thing and there's nothing that's binary just nothing that's binary and that's uh, we revel in that in the storytelling I'm talking with filmmaker and historian Ken Burns more of our conversation in a minute ADT professionally installs Google Nest products helping to make your home safe and smart You can check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. And with Nest Cams and Nest Doorbell, you get intelligent alerts on what matters most. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. 
When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. This is The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish. Back now to my conversation with filmmaker Ken Burns. We were talking about his process and how his work is about trying to get to the truth of a matter, even in a political and cultural climate that actively challenges the very idea of truth. So I asked him, what is the truth to you? I've, I, I've lately begun to sort of respond to that in sort of calling balls and strikes collecting as much evidence as possible, widening out, you know, you'd mentioned Confederate monuments and kind of a stuff like that. And, and the whole argument is, oh, they can't do that. They're taking away our, our heritage. They're taking away our history. No, we're not. We know exactly when you put that up. You didn't put them up after the war. You put them up after the, co- the collapse of Reconstruction. So all of that stuff is kind of ridiculous. So you just want to widen it as possible, see it from as many perspectives as possible, and then figure out how the way in which you are superimposing story is detrimental to the accumulation of facts, because that's the problem. Life doesn't order itself in Aristotelian fashion. And so the, the question, what is, what is truth, is, doesn't have an answer. It, it requires a process, and it requires an adherence and a dedication to that process day in and day out. So... But when you're doing things that have such a long time span, I mean, quite literally, the history can change. Of course, and that's why you don't want to write the script from the beginning and have it locked in stone like it just came down from Mount Sinai. You know, it's like, this is what it is. You want to be flexible. You want to be corrigible to the end. So, So truth is in itself a process. It's an approach to things, and it's a willingness to change and a kind of flexibility and a malleability. And then also those things are changing, and you don't ever, you don't ever get it. You don't ever um, grab it. I mean, I can tell you in another way, one and one equals two. That's the truth, right? But all the things that matter in our lives, everybody's lives here, either in our art or our faith or our relationship is where one and one equals three, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's what we look for. And that equation I'm as interested in as the fact and the truth of one and one equaling two. I I know that one and one also equals three, and that's the truth too. And so this is a big, huge, um, existential, artistic, but but more it's not a thing as much as it is a, a process. And so I've called it just balls and strikes. We're not subscribing to any particular thing. You mentioned 1619, the god-awful 1776 thing that was thrown up as the flack to oppose it. It's this was just, a counter-movement to the 1619 yeah, prediction, trying to reestablish the reactionism. It's, yeah. it's, and, and revisionism is itself nearly always unforgiving, just as the old thing it's trying to replace is usually bankrupt. And so what you need to find is some place in which those accumulating facts are not used as weapons to make an argument, but are just presented as what happened. One of the luxuries you have is time. Yes, huge. So people, you know, it is said that journalism is the first draft of history. (laughs) And no one ever turns in a rough draft. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, What's the long doc? 
the second, the third? Where, where does it fall on the spectrum of storytelling to you? What's that? The long documentary between the first draft and the history book. I don't know. It's definitely not a book. It doesn't contain a fraction of the information, but it has this wonderful thing, which are images that often, as we used to say, were worth a thousand words. And I think they've probably been devalued by the ever-increasing number of their brethren. Um, so maybe it's 250. I don't know if it's 500. But you do, you do have this power. You know, all of the art forms, when they die and go to heaven, want to be music. Because music is the only art form that's invisible. Like all the art forms have a kind of plasticity, right? So all the metaphors of the editing room are about music. They're not about the dialectics that are, we're engaged in. They're about like how, how is it this thing happens that you can't really articulate and describe. And that's true in every artist that I know, painter or sculptor or, or playwright, they all say the same. I mean, the object is to be music, and that has this unbelievable, invisible quality. So, I, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to answer these questions. You just, you, you work at it. The luxury is time, but it's all relative. Like, I, I, I wake up at 3 in the morning going, <gasps> it's I know. terrifying. I imagine you just like one of those cops in a detective film, and there's, like, string drawing here. And That's like exactly a what it is. Like, I can see it all. It, like it seems. We don't have it tangibly, but it's, you know, and it's, it's terrifying. And what happens is, I was reminded of this because we're in an editing session, is that when I get excited, I do this. And I never know it. And I'm, I'm working for a half an hour like this on the seat. And everybody just sort of looks and goes, hmm, he's getting excited. Yeah. So they think you're getting excited when you're actually standing in a squat position yes. on a chair. I'm what is it like when you are excited? Because you're trying to balance all of these things. Yeah. Because that's the negative space of creation. Right? If it's like a block of stone brought to the sculptress's studio, and what we see in the gallery or the museum is the end result, and she is as responsible for what's on the floor, what's not put in. It doesn't make part two. It doesn't make part three. It's not a sequel. It's not a prequel. It's just not there. And the not there is so terrifying. I, can't, I cannot begin to tell you you know, it's just, it's like being responsible for a child that you can't, that you don't have your eyes on, right? And so the work is obviously what you're making, what you're carving, yeah. right? But I love but that you're saying this because I, I have a friend where we debate this. Are we carving away to make the work or are we building? I think, I, you know, the presumption is that it's all additive and it does look like that. You're building something, but it's not. It's subtractive. Less is more. You, you're taking away. And, and maybe if you wanted to, to, to keep the architectural metaphor, the false work and scaffolding that is required to keep something as it goes up and then gets taken away, then you can have your additive and subtractive at the same time. But it's just metaphorical. It's just really hard to honor what you're not going to use. Because that's the answer to all of the questions you've been asking tonight about representation, about fairness, about perspective, about change, about truth. Because 
it's the work is not at all complicated in one essence. It's like putting on a pair of pants. You have to do it one leg at a time. There is no one in this room that can do it, right? Both legs at a time. And so it's very basic. <laughs> Somebody's raising their hand. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very basic. And it's very humbling. And you just have to submit to a kind of process. Much in the same way, life has that sort of stuff. It's going to have vicissitudes and stuff happening. I mean, I'm born, my whole reason I'm a filmmaker is born in tragedy. My mother was sick for the first 10 years of my life and died just before my 12th birthday when I was 11, you know? And later on, uh, my late father-in-law, who's an eminent psychologist, said, look what you do for a living. You wake the dead. You make Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? You know? It's just like I was 40 by then. That was 30, that was 30 years ago, and suddenly I'd been told exactly what had happened before. So there's something mysterious uh, in all of this and something that's not explainable, but it's is, is exhilarating. I know nothing better in my professional life than making a film better. I mean, like if you have just, even if you wake up the morning and said, what an idiot, how could you have possibly thought it should be that? At least the day before you'd said, let's try this, right? Um, and the time, the great gift of time, and you're right, is that you get to actually have to be rigorously honest about how often you screw up, meaning myself. I'm wondering, given what we know, oh, it's occurred to me in recent months, actually, that between this kind of uh, social media destabilization around information, AI, uh, even primary sources feel like maybe they won't be the definitive truth that they have felt like. Meaning, oh, there's a photograph of this. There's audio of, of that. Um, I think about this all the time as someone whose voice is out there. Yeah, and can be manipulated. And can be manipulated. And I wonder if you're thinking about any of this just more broadly, right? Like, could there ever be another <laughs> Ken Burns at this rate, given how many tools in the documentarian's toolbox are now far easier I, to manipulate? I know what you mean. I remember reading a letter in the 1850s after the tele telegraph had come in saying, this is the death of letter writing. Nobody will write another letter. And uh, somebody at the same time named Pete O'Brien said, 1858, oh, you know, they don't play baseball the way they used to when I was a boy. <laughs> I, I don't mean that they don't use the same rules. It's just it's not the same spirit, right? Um, when the Civil War series was being presented to the national critics in the summer of 1990 in Los Angeles at the press tour, as it's called, the critics said, Ken, this is great. No one's going to watch it. Because uh, there's this MTV fast-cutting, everybody's attention span is different. And anyway, Stephen Bochco has this new uh, police procedural, which they're singing, called Cop Rocks. No one will watch it. <laughs> they said the same thing about baseball. They said the same thing about jazz. They said the same thing about the war, but now they were talking about this thing on the Internet. And then by the time it was the national parks and... Um, they were saying that, you know, it was like YouTube kitten with a ball of yarn. And so 
in the midst of all of these gazillion choices, what do people do now? Binge. They look at the same thing for hours and days and weeks because they're looking for some constancy. So that's one pillar of the response to this thing. The other one... Meaning is, that there's still an appetite. There's still always an appetite okay. for duration because all real meaning accrues in duration. It's like a pearl. A pearl's an irritation and, you know, you don't, the layers, you don't, you don't say layer 17, but something at the end of that irritation is a pearl. Um, but I think with regard to technology and those changes, it's always been something that, I mean, in some ways, the only real answer is that we're here right now. We're here because we, we, we're all thinking about this thing about AI. We're all wondering about whether the voice that we see on the nightly news of the president or of somebody who's running for president has been manipulated to say something that he or she wouldn't have said. You know what I mean? But at the same time, we're here because we can be here together, right? And so it's something really wonderful. And that, that, that will win. That will always win. I just want to end with this um, question from the audience. And uh, it is from Seishu Badranath. Thank you for sending a question. It says, it's the year 2044. If you or your company were to commence creating a documentary of the 2023-2030 era in U.S. and global politics, what would it look and feel like? Historians, and my God, I'm an amateur one, make lousy prognosticators. I really? don't know. I can tell you that human nature doesn't change. I can, you know, Mark Twain is supposed to have said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I have never, <laughs> and if he did say it, it is so true because I have never worked on a film ever, not a single film in which it wasn't always rhyming in the present and in some way, shape, or form. And usually a stump speech when I'm out promoting the film is talking about how, what if I told you I'd been working for, pick, pick a film from 2011. What, I was working on a film about single issue political campaigns that metastasize with horrible unintended consequences, about the demonization of recent immigrant groups to the United States, about smear campaigns during presidential election times and a whole group of people who felt like they'd lost control of their country and wanted to take it back. That's a film on prohibition. Yes, they're gangsters. Yes, they're flappers dancing on tables. But the more interesting stuff is the stuff that sounded exactly like what was going on in 2011 with the Tea Party and single-issue political campaigns. So I, I just marvel at it. So it's, for me, it's a kind of um, counterfactual thing to say, like, what if the Confederacy had won the Civil War, right? That sort of stuff. What would happen then looking back? I can just tell you that if you don't exercise your rights of citizens, we're gonna be in a whole world of hurt. Well, I always like to end on a call to action, and I think that was an excellent one. A, yeah. <laughs> it kind of means vote, run for dog catcher, run for office, participate in politics. Wow. <laughs> Ken Burns, everybody. 
This show was a part of the Connecticut Forum's season of live unscripted conversations among renowned experts and celebrities. And you can learn all about the Connecticut Forum at ctforum.org. Remember, if you like today's show, I want you to share it. If you loved it, please go ahead, give us a five-star review because it helps people discover the show. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Our engineer is Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director and Steve Lichtai is the executive producer. We have support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dionora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namoro. Special thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman. And we'll be back in your feeds on Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. This week on All There Is with Anderson Cooper. I'll sit down with President Biden in the White House for a conversation about the losses in his life and how he lives with them. I don't know anybody who welcomes grief, but you got to confront it. It is, I think, the first time any sitting U.S. president has agreed to do an entire interview solely focused on grief. I mean this from the bottom of my heart, my word is a Biden. They're always going to be with you. Listen to All There Is with Anderson Cooper wherever you get your podcasts.